It was a warm August night in 1944. The United States had joined in the fray of World War II, and a seemingly endless battle was being waged in the Pacific. But in the quiet town of Mattoon, Illinois, a sense of peace persisted. That evening, Mr. Urban Rafe and his wife, whom we'll call Harriet, left their bedroom window open to welcome in the occasional breeze. The cool air and chirping crickets lulled them both into a restful, deep sleep. But in the early hours of the morning, Urban woke with a start. Something wasn't right. A pungent smell, sweet and suffocating, had filled the bedroom. He couldn't identify the odor, but it made his stomach churn. He turned to wake up his wife. As soon as her eyes opened, Harriet immediately gagged. She wondered if perhaps she'd left the gas stove on and told Urban that she'd check the kitchen. But when she tried to sit up, her shoulders didn't leave the bed. She strained to lift her head off the pillow to no avail. In fact, according to some reports, she couldn't move at all. Harriet had suddenly and without explanation become paralyzed. Panic and terror welled up inside Urban. He reached forward to help his wife, but a wave of nausea overcame him. What was happening? They'd never know for certain. The Rafe's nightmarish evening was the first recorded incident involving the Mad Gasser. For two weeks, a sinister and elusive figure attacked the people of Mattoon, gassing them through open windows. Nobody knows how or why they did it, because even today, the mysterious figure has never been identified. Meaning, they got away and may still be at large. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, also known as the Phantom Anesthetist. For two weeks in 1944, the elusive individual terrorized the small Midwestern town of Mattoon, Illinois. Today, we'll examine the details of the Mad Gasser's reign and hear testimony from some of the roughly 30 victims. The attacks left them violently ill and often partially paralyzed. Next time, we'll try to determine who or what caused these bizarre attacks and identify the mysterious gas they may have used. We'll also examine the political and social climate in Mattoon and analyze how that may have played a role in the panic. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Early in the morning of August 31st, 1944, the Rafes woke to a real-life nightmare. Harriet and Urban Rafe smelled a strange odor in their room. Immediately, Urban got sick, too sick to help his wife. He watched in horror as she struggled to free herself from the bed. Her paralysis slowly crept up her legs, rooting her to the spot. All the while, the fumes seemingly continued to pour into their room, invisible but overwhelmingly potent. Neither could imagine what they were dealing with. Urban's nausea turned into vomiting. Then the foul stench was in his throat. A burning sensation made his eyes water and his lips swell, but he was desperate to get help. He didn't know if the assistance would come from within the household or outside. The Rafes weren't home alone that night. Two guests were sleeping in another room. But Urban had no way to tell if they were sick, too. So he decided to reach out directly to the authorities. Fighting a wave of nausea, he made his way to the phone to call for help. However, as soon as he reached the phone, Urban felt a little better. He noticed that his nausea was subsiding and the sweet-smelling smoke seemed to have dissipated as quickly as it had first appeared. The attack was over. By the time the dawn arrived, the couple had recovered. Harriet even climbed out of bed, able to walk again. She and her husband were shaken, but otherwise healthy. When police later investigated the incident, they were bewildered. There was no sign of foul play or forced entry. Skeptical, they searched for clues but came up empty-handed. What was even more confusing, the two guests hadn't smelled the gas at all. But strangest of all, when doctors heard about the couple's symptoms, they couldn't account for the temporary paralysis or the Rafe's one lingering side effect, a painful, burning sensation in the back of their throats. Ultimately, it was thought that they might have suffered from food poisoning. Harriet wasn't convinced, but she was ready to put the incident behind her. They'd had hot dogs for dinner the night before, so she resolved not to buy that brand again and then dropped the matter. And as the hot summer day stretched on, 
the Wraiths did their best to forget the nightmarish attack from the night before. Maybe they could have put it behind them forever if a similar incident didn't occur the following night. Less than 24 hours after the Wraiths' attack, sisters Martha Reedy and Aline Carney sat together at the kitchen table. Aline's husband, Bert, was a cab driver, and he wouldn't be home until much later. But the women still felt safe, propping the front door and windows open. Mattoon was a small town, considered extremely safe, and neither had heard of the race experience the previous night. And besides, the women needed relief from the day's heat. As night fell, Aline put her three-year-old daughter to bed. But shortly after tucking her in, Aline noticed a pungent, sickly sweet smell wafting into the bedroom. At first, she thought it must be the jasmine flowers blooming right outside her window and ignored it. But seconds later, she felt a tingling in her legs. Aline's throat went dry and her lips felt like they were on fire. That's when she realized she wasn't smelling jasmine. It must have been a chemical. She screamed for help, and Martha dashed inside just in time to find her sister writhing in agony. Thankfully, her daughters seemed to only experience a mild and temporary nausea. Even so, Aline told her sister to take the child out of the house to find fresh air and help. Martha didn't need to be told twice. She took her niece by the hand and ran to the neighbors, leaving Aline to fend for herself. All alone, her symptoms grew steadily worse. The numb feeling of paralysis crept up her legs and into her lower body. She was rooted to the spot, pinned to the bed by an oppressive heaviness. She couldn't even bring herself to sit up when she vomited. All she could do was lie there, staring at the window and try to make sense of what was happening to her. And that's when Aline saw something strange, a shadow as though someone were standing just outside. But she couldn't do anything about the prowler. She couldn't do anything at all, but lie there and wait, defenseless. Meanwhile, Aline's husband, Bert, finally returned home from work. He just pulled into the drive when he saw a dark figure standing outside his daughter's bedroom window. In a flash, he was out of his car and through the garden gate. He couldn't make out the figure's features because they wore head-to-toe black clothing and a hat that obscured their face. Worst of all, the stranger heard Bert approaching and fled. Bert gave chase, but the prowler was fast. In minutes, they disappeared down an unlit alleyway. Unaware of the continued danger, Bert returned home to break the news that a peeping Tom was now in Mattoon. He pushed open the door to reveal a grisly sight, his wife in the midst of seemingly painful retching movements. Luckily, the police had also just arrived along with Martha. Bert wasted no time in telling them all about the figure outside. Aline started to recover while her husband told his tale. As she regained the ability to move, Bert helped her to the sofa so the officers could take her testimony. Though the cops hadn't been summoned to the Rafe's house the night before, when word got out about the incident at the Carney home, Urban and Harriet Rafe came forward with their story. 
Almost immediately, some on the police force believed the attacks had to be related. Unfortunately, not everyone was convinced. When the officers shared their theory with the chief of police, the commanding officer seemed skeptical. This was Mattoon, not war-torn Europe. Why would anyone attack a pair of married couples with a chemical weapon? In spite of the disbelief, the officers returned to the Carney's house the following morning to sweep for evidence. As news spread throughout the neighborhood, a small civilian search party joined the police in their effort, but they found nothing. The lack of evidence didn't do much to bolster the serial gas attack theory. But even though some people doubted the police officers' hypothesis, they still had good reason to worry. At the very least, a peeping Tom had disturbed the Carneys and might target other local families. But who could it have been? No one was prepared to believe that one of their own could be responsible for something so sinister. Unfortunately, the mysterious figure was about to step up their tactics and leave the people of Mattoon mired in paranoia. Coming up, the attacks pick up steam. Hi everyone, it's Molly. If you haven't had a chance to check out the playful new podcast, Blind Dating, now's the time to binge what you've missed before catching all new episodes every Wednesday. In this Spotify original from ParCast, we're expanding the places you can meet your match with a twist you'll never see coming. Join host Tara Michelle as she introduces one hopeful single to two strangers in a voice-only call. Through a series of illuminating games and questions, the trio will get to know one another without the distraction of appearances. But in the end, is personality enough for these strangers to fall head over heels? Or, once the cameras are turned on, will they head for the hills? Connect with new episodes of Blind Dating every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On August 31st, 1944, Urban and Harriet Rafe woke to a sweet-smelling gas in their room. It made Urban feel sick and partially paralyzed Harriet, but their symptoms wore off quickly. They assumed their experience was insignificant until the events of the next night became known. The day after Aline Carney suffered her attack, two more families came forward with eerily similar stories that had taken place on the night of September 1st. One account came from Mrs. Ryder, a mother of two. Around midnight, her children suddenly and mysteriously fell ill. While Mrs. Ryder took care of them, she noticed a strange smell in their bedroom. Immediately, she felt a burning sensation in her throat Although her symptoms were minor, 
she still filed a police report the next day. An anonymous woman just a few blocks away reported that she felt severely nauseous around one in the morning. Her symptoms persisted for several hours afterward. The officers took each woman's testimony with trepidation. The reports showed an obvious pattern. The sweet smell could no longer be overlooked, but luckily, the police quickly formulated a theory. Perhaps all the victims had fallen prey to chloroform. Chloroform is a naturally occurring clear liquid with a slightly sweet chemical smell, similar to that of industrial cleaning products. Exposure can knock a person unconscious. You've probably seen movies or TV shows where people drop to the floor after inhaling from a chloroform-soaked rag. However, that trope is a bit of Hollywood exaggeration. In reality, it takes about five minutes for chloroform to knock someone out, if the dose is correct. If the attacker uses too much, the chemical can be lethal. Conversely, the Mattoon police knew that small amounts of chloroform could lead to feelings of weakness and lethargy, just like what all the victims had reported. It could even cause paralysis, although it targets the respiratory system rather than the legs. Unfortunately, chloroform evaporates quickly when exposed to air, so the police couldn't find any tangible evidence to confirm whether or not it was used. The good news was chloroform was dangerous and difficult to get a hold of. The gasser would have had to buy it from an authorized merchant, which meant the police should be able to find the records of the sale. And that could lead them directly to the culprit. There was just one problem. Mrs. Ryder knew what chloroform smelled like, and she insisted it wasn't the aroma that had wafted into her bedroom. Our research doesn't say how seriously the police took Mrs. Ryder's protests, but there isn't any indication that they identified anyone who'd purchased chloroform. So they either took her at her word, or they conducted their own dead-end investigation. Without any tangible evidence or suspects to interrogate, the Mattoon police were at a loss. Since they couldn't take practical steps to find the gasser, the authorities resolved to try to keep the reports contained until they knew more about what they were dealing with. They didn't want to start a panic. But word inevitably reached the local newspaper. The strange events made the following morning's edition of the Mattoon Journal-Gazette. The headline read, Anesthetic Prowler on Loose. The article only covered the Carney incident because the other victims hadn't connected with the press yet, but it was enough to terrify readers. The town could talk of little else but the shadowy figure, which the news called the Mad Gasser. But then, Saturday night passed without a single disturbance. Then Sunday and Monday, no calls about gas leaks, no sightings of anything or anyone out of the usual. By Tuesday, it seemed like the mad gasser had called it quits or moved on, if they'd ever existed at all. Five days after the first attack on the rafes, the town stopped holding its breath for the gasser to strike again. Most people wrote the incidents off as freak accidents. But then something unusual happened on Tuesday night. Beulah Cordes and her husband, Carl, returned home from a night out to find an unfamiliar wet rag on their porch. Beulah picked it up 
and without thinking, sniffed it. Something that felt like an electric current tore through her body. An immediate sense of weakness spread up from her legs, and Beulah collapsed. Carl helped his wife inside as she began to spit up blood. Terrified, Carl called a doctor while his wife's lips swelled and blistered before his eyes. But just as quickly as the symptoms set in, they began to fade. By the time the physician arrived at the Cordis' house, Beulah could walk again. Her throat and lips were burning, but she was going to be okay. Acting Police Chief C.E. Cole sent the rag to the Illinois State Police Laboratory for analysis. With luck, they'd positively identify the chemicals used and the gasser's secret weapon would be exposed. From there, it should be easy to find the criminal. They had another breakthrough the next morning when a skeleton key and a tube of lipstick were found in the Cordis's yard. Neither belonged to Carl or Beulah. The lipstick was an unexpected twist in the Mad Gasser equation. Originally, officials had assumed that the suspect was a male peeping Tom. But perhaps the prowler was a woman? The skeleton key proved to be equally baffling. Police tried it in the Cordes' home, but it didn't work in any of their doors. From there, they expanded their search throughout the neighborhood and may have even tested locks in the other victims' houses. The Cordes' weren't the only ones the Mad Gasser visited that night. There had to have been at least one other victim. The Gasser had apparently gone to the house of another Mattoon housewife. After hearing someone outside her bedroom window, the unnamed victim was hit by the sudden smell of gas, which was then followed by a mild paralysis in her legs. The phantom anesthetist was escalating their twisted game. And just like that, the citywide paranoia reached a fever pitch again. The citizens of Mattoon demanded an arrest, and it didn't take long for police to produce a top suspect. The same night that Beulah had discovered the cloth, the police had apprehended an unfamiliar man strolling down an alley near the Cordes' home. He claimed to be lost, but the officers didn't buy his explanation, so they brought him to the station for further questioning. However, he didn't give any indication that he knew anything about the gasser, and nobody could produce a shred of concrete evidence linking him to the attacks. The police detained him for as long as they legally could, but eventually they had to release him. The strange man simply told the authorities he'd been lost. Chief of Police Cole didn't buy the story. He'd spent his childhood in the small community and couldn't imagine someone suddenly losing their way. Naturally, the mystery drummed up attention. On Friday, September 8th, nine days after the attacks began, the accounts about the mad gasser became a matter of national interest. The story struck an uncomfortable nerve. With America's involvement in World War II, some feared it wouldn't be long before the Axis powers launched an attack on the continental U.S. Rumors spread like wildfire that Hitler was manufacturing new, previously unknown chemical agents. Too many people had lost husbands, brothers, and fathers to chemical warfare overseas. But no one had expected the battle to reach American soil quite so soon. 
Mattoon was living out many people's worst fears, a gas attack on the home front in the midst of a world war. Bolstered by the national spotlight, the townspeople of Mattoon were adamant. They wanted more security, more patrol cars, and more aggressive action. Some newspapers wrote about rumored city council meetings where the mayor allegedly offered a reward for the elusive prowler's capture. As the investigation continued, police commissioner Thomas Wright requested assistance from the Illinois Department of Public Safety. The state sent the Mattoon Police Department 10 out-of-town officers and five new squad cars. A rumor even began to circulate that the FBI had gotten involved. Several agents were on their way, or perhaps had already arrived, to stake out the streets. But many locals weren't ready to trust the officials. The week of September 5th, the city was even quieter than usual. Children weren't allowed out to play unsupervised, and the streets were empty by nightfall. Windows that had been left open all summer were closed and locked. But despite new measures, the night of September 6th took a turn for the worse. A record seven attacks occurred. One featured a restaurant manager who closed up for the night before returning to her apartment in the back of the building. She'd left her windows open and immediately noticed a pungent smell, like cheap perfume and old flowers. Within seconds, the chemical took effect. She was on the floor and sick before she could reach the phone. Then, nearby, the parents of a similarly ill 11-year-old girl spotted a prowler lurking outside their daughter's window. The figure was tall and dressed head to toe in black clothing. Report after report rolled in, but no matter how hard they tried, the police couldn't find any evidence. But the Mattoon locals were tired of excuses. They thought the officials should have apprehended the gasser by now. And if the prowler was still at large, then the problem was the police. The following Saturday, the locals organized a mass protest to put more pressure on law enforcement to bring the mad gasser to justice. Meanwhile, community leaders and local business owners formed a militia. By September 8th, they were patrolling the streets. If their police department couldn't ensure their safety, they'd do it themselves. It had only been a week since the Wraith's mysterious bout of food poisoning. And already, Mattoon was on the brink of anarchy. Coming up, officials finally produce an explanation. Now, back to the story. After a week of gas attacks, the people of Mattoon, Illinois, were on edge. They created informal neighborhood watch groups while armed men patrolled the streets. Despite their efforts, the gasser struck again on September 7, 1944. A school principal heard a strange buzzing outside her bedroom window and then noticed a distinct bluish vapor seeping into her room. The principal's story was the first one to link a color to the vapor or gas. Since chloroform is invisible, investigators officially ruled it out. But they were operating under an assumption that the gasser hadn't changed tactics. And that Friday night, on September 8th, they realized how wrong that conclusion might be. 
That evening, a cloud of the noxious gas descended on a group of people gathered in the town square. An estimated 70 people in total, including several reporters from out of town, experienced the now textbook symptoms that were the mad gasser's calling card. When asked to comment on the event, Superintendent Richard Piper from the Illinois Department of Public Safety speculated on the culprit's mental health. He said the prowler was mentally unbalanced, but also intelligent, possibly brilliant. The man is a nut. His unfounded conclusions did little to comfort the people of Mattoon. Concerned citizens called for Police Chief C.E. Cole's resignation. His position became even more tenuous when he received the lab results from the soaked rag Beulah Cordes had found on her porch. They were inconclusive. The evidence bag had been shelved for over 60 hours before testing. Any chemical that had once been on the material had apparently evaporated before analysis. Their primary clue proved useless. And while police scrambled for any new information, the gasser only became bolder. On the night of September 10th, many Mattoon citizens gathered at the movie theater, desperate for something to get their mind off of recent events. But something was amiss. In the middle of the feature, a woman smelled something sweet and perfume-like. Fearing the worst, her pulse began to quicken and her breath caught in her chest. The gasser had struck a crowded town square. Why wouldn't they attempt a full theater? They were sitting ducks. She raised the alarm. The moviegoers panicked and fled in a stampede. It was pandemonium. The woman who'd smelled the gas checked into the hospital for treatment. But the doctors noticed something odd. Her symptoms didn't match those of other victims. After an examination, they diagnosed her with an anxiety attack. The records didn't say if anybody else had to be hospitalized. But either way, the alleged theater gassing was easy to explain away. The woman may have smelled a strong perfume, assumed the worst, and understandably panicked. And the fiasco probably inspired Chief Cole. Finally, he had the tools to stem the town's growing panic. The day after the theater incident, Chief Cole announced that the police wouldn't take any more reports relating to the mad gasser. At least, not unless the victim first consented to a medical exam. They'd have to prove their symptoms were real and convince the doctor they weren't having a, quote, hysterical episode. Anyone who didn't agree to a physician's assessment could potentially face a night in jail. To Chief Cole's immense satisfaction, the number of calls relating to the phantom anesthetist drastically decreased. The woman who'd cried gasser in the theater was publicly shamed, and no one wanted to follow in her footsteps. Whatever sounds or smells seemed suspicious in the dead of night, they couldn't be worth a forced examination or a night in jail. The Mattoon police were satisfied with Cole's declaration. Their inability to catch the prowler wasn't a sign of their incompetence. It was evidence that the mad gasser had never existed to begin with. But as convenient as Chief Cole's suggestion of mass hysteria was, it failed to account for the multiple sightings of the shadowy, black-clad figure, 
It dismissed the mysterious cloth on the Cordis's porch and the fact that so many early reports were so similar, even before the mad gasser made the news. So in spite of their stance that the attacks were imaginary, the police continued to investigate. At one point, they allegedly detained two suspects overnight, but released them after a home was gassed that same evening. Again, the testimony seemed too detailed to be all in the victims' heads, but town officials maintained their stance that the mad gasser wasn't real. Their insistence didn't persuade the locals, though, and the attacks continued. Late one evening, Violet Driscoll and her daughter Ramona woke up to the sounds of someone just outside their window attempting to remove the storm sash. A sickly sweet odor wafted in seconds later. Violet woke Ramona. They rushed to the front porch to get fresh air and call for help. But in the seconds it took to leave their bedroom, Ramona inhaled enough of the fumes to induce vomiting. Nearby, the Smith sisters had just turned in for the night when they noticed a strange perfume smell lingering in their apartment. Within minutes, they were violently ill with flu-like symptoms. Unfortunately, we don't know if the Smiths or the Driscolls submitted to a medical exam. But even if the police disregarded their accounts, they couldn't deny the sheer number of reports that had come in. Something was going on. On September 11, 1944, officers responded to a call from Mrs. Bertha Bentz. Bertha woke up in the middle of the night to the terrible realization that she'd left her bedroom window ajar. And the gasser had taken full advantage. Feeling the full range of symptoms from paralysis to nausea, she couldn't move from her bed. She called desperately for help, waking up her sons in the next room. They ran outside to find the culprit and saw a short, heavy-set person sprinting away from their mother's window. Unfortunately, the prowler escaped before they could get a good look at them. The next morning, the Bentz brothers found several pairs of footprints in the flower bed outside their mother's window. The perfect imprint of a woman's high-heeled shoe. The style was popular at the time among women in the workforce. That didn't narrow the search down by much, but the footprint, coupled with the lipstick from before, once more suggested the gasser was a woman. In an interview with a Chicago paper called The Herald American, Bertha Bentz claimed she'd spotted the prowler before she got sick, and she alleged that the attacker was a woman dressed in man's clothing. It's hard to explain why a woman dressed as a man would still wear her high-heeled shoes. But then again, it's unlikely Bertha would have seen the gasser's feet through the window. Either way, it seemed like the break the police needed. But the next day, Chief Cole issued a statement to the Mattoon Journal-Gazette, and he contradicted Bertha's testimony entirely. He pinned the gas attacks on fumes from a local factory. Cole said, we have found that large quantities of carbon tetrachloride are used in the war work done at the Atlas Imperial Diesel Engine Company plant, and that it has an odor which could be carried to all parts of the city as the wind shifts. The plant manager denied Cole's claims. He even procured a note from a city health official 
which said that Cole's theory was laughably impossible. They had safety measures in place to prevent the carbon tetrachloride gas from escaping the factory, and there was no evidence they'd ever had a leak. Plus, even if some fumes had seeped out, they disperse harmlessly into the air. There was no way a toxic concentration could have reached the town without the factory employees noticing. In short, Cole's claims didn't hold up to scrutiny. Like the false arrests from earlier and the mass hysteria claims, it seemed like Mattoon's officials had no idea of what was going on and were desperate to find a scapegoat. It was only a matter of time before the next series of attacks would exonerate Atlas Imperial Diesel Engine Company. Except there was no next series of attacks. The Mad Gasser's reign of terror ended as abruptly as it had begun. Strangely, it doesn't seem that the people of Mattoon did anything to stop the incidents. The police never arrested a serious culprit. The Atlas diesel plant didn't stop operations. The phenomenon ceased without any apparent cause. Although they didn't have any hard evidence or leading theories, the police closed the case of the phantom anesthetist soon after. Grateful that their nightmare was over, the town slipped once again into cultural anonymity. But questions were left unanswered, and many locals still demanded answers. 33 people had reported gas attacks over the course of 12 days. The police had questioned multiple suspects, but never gathered enough clues to implicate any of them. In fact, many were exonerated when gassings happened during their incarceration. Most of the questions about the mad gasser remain unanswered. Even today, nobody knows what chemical they used or how they managed to strike so many homes in the short time period. Nor do we know why they stopped after about two weeks. Assuming the mad gasser is real at all. Next time, we'll delve more into the Atlas diesel plant explanation and explore whether pollution could have caused the string of illnesses. And we'll look at historic mass hysteria outbreaks, including a so-called dancing plague from 16th century Europe. Perhaps there's a benign explanation for the two-week outbreak, or maybe a now elderly serial gasser is still at large with goals and motives that remain inscrutable. On the upside, they haven't struck in over seven decades, so you can rest easy and trust that you're safe for now. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back on Thursday with part two of The Mad Gasser of Mattoon. For more information on the gas panic, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, Dispelling the Hysteria by Scott Maruna, and Mysterious America, The Ultimate Guide to the Nation's Weirdest Wonders, Strangest Spots, and Creepiest Creatures by Lauren Coleman, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. 
Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Katie Burris, with writing assistance by Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Brad Klein and Brian Petrus. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Listeners, there's no better time to follow your heart and check out the hit Spotify original from Parcast, Blind Dating. Every Wednesday, find out if personality alone is enough to make a love connection. Follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.